Monday, February 26th. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia Uglova. America is not a poor country, but our awful public school system makes many of us question just how rich we really are. Funds funneled into the Department of Education never seem to give a return on investment. Why do American school children consistently lag behind their peers in other rich countries? Education policy analyst Neil McCluskey wonders the same thing. What is the nation's report card? Well, the nation's report card, it's a name that's been given to what's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Now, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, isn't really monolithic. It's not just one test. It's actually a series of multiple tests with all kinds of different standards that covers everything from civics to geography to economics. They have a long-term trends report that looks at math and reading for decades now. But the report that came out today from the nation's report card was for 12th graders, so the sort of the final product of America's school system, how they are doing on tests of reading ability and mathematics knowledge and the ability to do math. This is kind of one of the core exams because this really gets at the very basics. How are our students doing on the most basic of skills, reading and math? And you said this is just for 12th graders. So how did they fare this time around? The scores for 12th graders, they were pretty bad. When you consider how much we've increased spending per pupil for students, which has gone up nearly 20% just since 1992, which is the first year they've been tracking this in reading anyway. It's a new math test. But when you consider how much money has gone up and how the very strong push for standards and accountability, where states would set standards that are supposedly high that all students would have to meet, and under No Child Left Behind, the federal government would require this and punish schools that didn't meet the high standards. When you consider all those things that have been done, what you see in reading is the scores have actually gone down a point since 2002, and the average score is now six points lower than they were in 1992. So our final product, the kids that are about to complete the entire school system, elementary and secondary school system, are doing worse now than they've ever done, at least since the start of this test. In math, they don't have the same long-term data because they have a new math test, one they haven't given before in 12th grade. But what they found is that only 23% of students rated what they call proficient. And the people who run the National Report Card, they say proficient is where all students should be when they graduate. So if you think about that in math, less than a quarter of students graduating from high school are where we think they should be in terms of their mathematical knowledge and abilities. Why are our American school children consistently behind in their schoolwork compared to other rich countries? There are probably a number of factors that influence why they're behind. For a long time in this country, we had public schools that were dominated by sort of progressive pedagogies. And so in reading, that was a whole language technique where kids, they didn't learn to sound out words. They didn't learn what different groupings of letters sounded like. They were told, learn to read by reading and sort of just work out words. And so they had creative spelling and things like that. Well, what we found is that that did not result in good reading. Kids didn't learn how to read effectively, efficiently, or quickly. But they had nowhere to go because progressive pedagogy dominated the public schools and people didn't really have anywhere else they could go other than the public school systems. In math, kids were learning a lot of what's called fuzzy math. There's a lot of calculator use early on. People didn't learn their multiplication tables anymore. They just sort of worked through it as best they could. And again, 
this wasn't working, but kids had nowhere to go. So only recently, maybe in the last decade or so, there's been a revolt against this sort of pedagogy that nobody could escape because it was in the public schools. We've had states and the federal government try and say, well, you have to teach reading through phonics and, and you, you know, have to meet certain math requirements, at least success requirements. But the problem is that you still have a monopoly system. So all the teachers and all the administrators and all the school board associations that had had power before continue to have the power because they're the people who can lobby most effectively and do lobby most effectively in state houses and the federal government to keep standards actually low and to enable themselves to continue to teach the way they want. So you have the federal government and state governments pouring more money into education and demanding high standards, but when it comes to actual implementation, nothing ever changes because the power doesn't rest with the parents who want the changes. It still rests with all those special interest groups who make their living off the public education system and therefore spend lots of time and lots of money lobbying, doing advocacy work, helping to write regulations that don't really hold them accountable. I know you're going to say that part of the solution lies in school choice and not in a national curriculum, but the countries we're competing with also use national curriculums, not vouchers, but yet their students are performing better. Isn't it possible to look at best practices there in these schools and work out a different curriculum for American children before announcing that vouchers are the one and only way to improve our schools? It's true that the countries, many of them that do better than we do, do have a national curriculum, but it's also important to note that they almost all have more school choice than we do. And that includes a lot of the countries that we typically think of as centralized and close to socialists, like many of the Nordic countries. They have an abundance of school choice that we don't have. The other important thing is to note that in many of these countries where they have a centralized system and they have standard assessments that they give to their students and they have set standards, is that the students don't meet those through their public schools. In many cases, they go to private for-profit making entities like cram schools, like Kumon schools in Japan or in Korea and Hong Kong and those places that especially do better than we do in mathematics and have traditionally done better. They have a public school system, but the real key to the success is they all then pay on top of it to go to these cramped schools to really get the knowledge they need to do well on these exams. We also should look at these other countries and realize that while they're doing better on tests, many of them realize that there's a flip side to that, and their kids don't leave with the creativity or the ability to you know, think outside the box that American students do. So many of these countries are actually reducing the centralization of their system. In particular, it comes to mind Japan, which in the last few years has reduced by about a third the size and scope of its national curriculum. These countries are realizing that there is something to be said for not having as much standardization in their schools and to allow people to have some freedom in the schools that they choose. So, yes, there are national standards in the countries that we're competing with that are doing better than we are on these tests, but they have a lot more school choice, typically, than we do, and they've realized that test scores and standardization has a downside that they don't like and they're trying to get away from. Now, I looked at a statement by your colleague, Andrew Coulson, that he made recently, and he said that more parents have now graduated colleges and are able to help their children with schoolwork than ever before. So I'm quoting here, if the home environment is now more conducive to learning, but less learning is actually taking place, the problem is the schools. But to me, this seems like a non sequitur. I don't understand why one must follow the other. It could be any number of reasons. 
Well, I mean, in general, what he's saying makes some sense, because if you look at a lot of research into education, there's a very tight connection between the education level of parents and how their kids do. And it sort of makes sense because more educated parents, they'll have more books in the home and they'll be able to help kids with their homework and things like that more effectively than less educated students. So there is good reason to say that if we see parents are more educated, you would expect to see their kids in general doing better. But it is correct that there are a lot of factors that go into children's success other than their parents' education. You know, there are health factors, you know, how many are English second language learners and things like that. But if you look at measures of the sort of the wellness, I guess you could call it, of students and how many of the factors that they need to do well are present, we see that over the last few decades, students in general are better off now in terms of their health, nutrition, things like that than they were before. You know, than they were two decades ago. And so when we look at those trends in the aggregate, those two would suggest that students should be doing better now than they were before. But none of that is playing out in the scores. And it seems that the reason is, even though parents are slightly more educated than they used to be and kids are somewhat better off than they used to be, they can't put that into real effective use in the system because they can't change the system. So they can't demand higher standards and they can't demand better performance from their schools because ultimately, even though they're slightly better educated, they still can't go anywhere. They can't take their children and the money attached to them and say to the schools that they know are underperforming, we don't want your services, so you're not getting our money or our kids, and we're going to go to schools that work. So there is good reason to believe when you look in the aggregate at the status of children, their health and their welfare, things like that, and if you look at the education of their parents is improving, that if you look at those things and you take them in isolation, the kids should do better. I mean, all those indicators say the kids should do better, but they're not. And so it's reasonable to say then there must be a problem with the schools, and we can identify the problem with the schools in that we know the one thing that parents have never been able to do is take the money and their kids and go to schools that are more effective. So there's every reason to think that the schools are the problem, and pretty few to say that, well, it must still be outside influences that are keeping the schools from being able to do what we know they're capable of doing. Why are school systems so resistant to experimenting with different curricula? School systems are resistant because the groups and the people who have all the power in education are resistant. As I said earlier, progressive pedagogy, this idea of whole language and fuzzy math and use of calculators and all these things that are sort of non-traditional, unlike phonics and you know, learning your multiplication tables and things like that, those are beloved by the people who run the schools. For instance, if you go to most colleges of education, teachers are learning progressive pedagogy. And those teachers often go on to be the administrators and the superintendents and, and things like that. And so they want to teach this progressive pedagogy, and they have all the power in the system, and they have the power in the system because of diffuse costs and concentrated benefits. They make their living from this system, so they invest a lot of money into advocacy and lobbying groups, the National Education Association, the National School Board Association, the Association of American School Administrators, and on and on and on. This is the alphabet soup. Bill Bennett, when he was education secretary, called it the blob. And it was omnipresent. And so all those groups who make their living off the system lobby and advocate fiercely for what they want from it. Now, the counterbalance to that should be parents. But because they're in a system dominated by politics, not a market system, they can't counter that because parents 
don't make their living off the system. They have jobs. They have to worry about their kids. They have all kinds of other things where they can't constantly be monitoring not just the passing of laws, but the writing of regulations, the implementation of laws, and all those things that you know, the blob can do. And so they can't counter that political power in order to get the schools that teach you know, the phonics or the non-fuzzy math, which is not to say there aren't some kids who could use that. There's some kids who benefit from it. But all kids are different. You can't have one system, one size fits all. Until parents are given the ability to leave the schools that aren't working for their kids and take their money with them, they're going to be subject to what the most politically powerful groups want to give them. And those most politically powerful groups is the blob. So until there's school choice, you're not going to see the kind of rigorous academics we need because the people who want it have no ability to get it. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.